0: A podcast one production. The media cycle is a fascinating subject in any public walk of life and most certainly in Australian politics. Now, there's two sides to this, from within the media... And from within the walls of a politician's office, I'm Adam Peacock, and this episode of Peacock Politics is about the latter, the methods, the tricks even, they use to get their message across, how they press their narrative and want to give their own answers regardless of the question. Like, how many times have we heard it? Journalists ask politician, what's one plus one? Politician answers, washing machine. It's so frustrating, but there's obviously a reason for it. For four years, Lachlan Harris was the Senior Press Secretary for Kevin Rudd and was in the role when Rudd swept into power in 2007 before he stepped away three years later. Now, Lachlan, welcome to Peacock Politics. Do you promise to answer the questions like a normal person, not a politician? For instance, what's one plus one? Washing machine. Ah, no. This is going to a long (laughs) half hour. (laughs) Uh, Mate, thank you for your time. It it is much appreciated. Give us the day of the life of a media advisor, for instance, for a prime minister. Yeah, well, look, it's a
1: long day. We would have a phone call, a hookup with all the other press sex, 5.30 every morning, 365 days a year. That never ends. That never. There's not a quiet day. Even Christmas Day. Well, Christmas Day is one of the busiest days of the year because what happens is as the rest of the country shuts down... The journos are still coming into work. They need stories. The one source of kind of, you know, guaranteed story and comment is the Prime Minister's office. So actually the quieter days, New Year's Day, Easter Sunday, they were some of our busiest days. So yeah, it was 365 days a year, 5.30 every morning. And then you do the same thing after the TV news every night. And that was every single day of the year. So I did that for about four years straight, basically. It's a very intense... Process. Now, obviously, that's, you know, inside the federal government, it's a little bit different if you go down to state and local Mm. politics, but it is very busy. And actually, exhaustion explains a whole lot of stuff that goes wrong in the media cycle and goes wrong in politics a lot of the time. Like, it's the intensity of it. Does make people make poor judgments over time occasionally. And it's uh, as much as you want to believe it's a lot of conspiracy, exhaustion is a big part of the kind of the challenge of doing those jobs, particularly being the prime minister or the, the premier or the opposition leader or a senior minister. It
0: is absolutely relentless. Yeah, friendships and relationships. I'm just thinking from a human side, first of all, that they must get bent and broken on a regular occurrence? Basically, Prime
1: Minister's office tend to be filled with two sorts of people, single people and divorced people. And there's not many people that don't fit into those two
0: categories. Goodness. So your
1: best friend's your phone charger, basically. (laughs) Thank God I'm out now. (laughs) Uh, But uh, look, you have to be able to commit yourself to the job. You have to be able to commit 100%. And actually a lot of the people who have negative experiences there, it's that demands are so high is that they resent that. You have to either be willing to hand over your life or you'll end up resenting it, or you'll churn. Most people last about two years in those offices, and there's a reason for that is because you can only give yourself entirely
0: for, for a certain period of time. So, hang on, if, if it's so exhausting and you're up before the sun rises and you're down long after the sun sets, why do you want to keep on doing it? Well, there's two answers. There's the nice
1: answer, which is the stuff, the content really matters. Like, you making a major influence on people's lives, And you're dealing with really important events. There's nothing quite like the rush of the biggest story of the day breaks. You know you're going to at least react to it. You're going to be part of that process when really big things happen. You know, when the GFC hit, to be right in the middle of dealing with that, even if you're just on the sidelines like I am as a press sec, it's incredibly interesting. The simpler answer is also just you just love the (laughs) biff. <laughs> Adrenaline. It's just, mate, it's tribalism. Like how many, you know what it's like? I'm sure in the media you have big tribes, you know what I mean? And it's this incredible, simple tribal process where there's an ultimate winner and it's so clear who's winning and who's losing. Yeah. And it's just every, you know, every couple of years, the entire country gets to buy in and decide that. And so But once know, that's
0: gone, you're gone. I yeah, think it's very hard to
1: sustain. People often say to me, Oh, I'm thinking about going down to work in politics in Canberra. And I say to them, do you love or hate either the Labor Party or the Liberal Party? Assuming they're going to work for one of those two parties, and if they don't say either yes, they love one, on they yes, they hate the other, I'm like, don't do it. Hate's too strong a word. Yeah, I, I know don't, what you mean. And, and I'm saying that hate with a sense of humour. Like I'll tell you a story. When we won and we beat the the Howard's guys, I walked in on the first day in the office, and David Luff and Benny Mitchell, who were Howard's press sex, had left me a six pack of beer on my table when I arrived to say congratulations. And we both exchanged messages and I still would see them, saw both of them recently, very friendly. I I do not believe in one second in partisanship, which turns into kind of like personal feuds. But did I love the beating those guys? Oh, then they beat me plenty of times, let me tell you, like really towered me up in 2004. God, they absolutely wiped the floor with us. But that tribalism is incredibly addictive, particularly, I think, if you're a bit younger and you're really sort of hungry. And so that, <laughs> that is a source of energy. It's not a sustainable <laughs> source of energy, but it's definitely a source of energy. But then underneath that is the best operators don't allow that tribalism to actually affect their personal lives. And there's lots of politicians who, on both sides, who have... Maybe it's harder to have really strong relationships across the aisle now, but they definitely exist, and I have absolutely no time. Staffers, in the end, you're a staffer. You should never allow your boss's kind of animosities to colour your personal relationships, and I have so much respect for Howard's team whatever happened for the years that we were up against each other, they always maintained not just a mutual respect, but a genuine, there's life beyond this guys. Let's kind of just, you know, accept that. And, and that's certainly something I tried to do, you know, even within the party. I remember the day that Rudd got rolled, I had probably 10 guys in my team, 10 people, girls and guys. And I just looked at them and I said, look, like this thing's happened in politics, stay at your desk and look as busy as you possibly can when the new mob turns up when Gillard's team turn up and be as helpful as you possibly can and keep your job like that's what we're here for you know Rudd and Gillard can hate each other that's fine but that's not us we're staffers we're here to just serve whoever's the in the gig and
0: when you lose that sense those people I really don't have a lot of respect for and they're dangerous with the media side of it so the Prime Minister makes a decision and it's based on strategy how much of it it takes into account the media and what the media are going to think of it and how they're going to report it. Is that just when you've come up with a decision, then you've got to kind of sell it per se, or when you're making the decision, it's factored in that how it's going to look in the yeah. media space?
1: Look, first of all, you're doing two things at once. You're trying to govern the country and retain the right to govern. In other words, win elections. Like, And they are both equally important, you know what I mean? The idea is they're very connected In order to win elections, you have to govern well. This is when you're actually in government, you know what I mean? And so clearly maintaining power is an incredibly important part of being in politics. You can't be a politician if you don't want to maintain power in many ways because that's how you govern and achieve the things you want to achieve for the country. Maintaining power, a significant part of that is ensuring that voters support you. A significant part of that is ensuring that journalists basically inform voters in a way that is make them likely to support you. So it is a big part. Anyone who tells you it's not is just not being factual, you know what I mean? And is not being straight. It is a huge part of the way that you decide what you do and why you do it and how you announce it is how it's going to be interpreted by voters. And obviously journalists have a major influence on that. And so how it's going to be interpreted by journalists. Now that's all reality, but are the journos are sitting there thinking what's good for the country. Voters are thinking what's good for me, you know what I mean, or what's good, what's good for voters. Voters are thinking the same thing. We're meant to be thinking the same thing. So the fact that you're thinking how is this going to be interpreted by journalists who are going to influence voters, as long as you're all actually aligned in that what's better for the – is the outcome better for voters in the end, that process is rational. When you get in trouble is when you start trying to actually – not communicate through journalists to voters is when you try and hide things from voters or when you try and change an interpretation and and revise things and all that sort of stuff. So, it gets incredibly messy, but a huge part of politics is working out how to stay in power. A huge part of staying in power is making sure journalists are kind of interpreting accurately and positively what you're doing. Is a huge part of it choosing the right journalists to use? Yeah, it's funny, at a really high level, when you're basically, you know, if you're in the Prime Minister's office or the Opposition Leader's office, is you don't think about individual journalists that much. The challenge, right, if you imagine, if you if the national conversation is maybe divided into four topics at any one time, maybe occasionally, often it's one, sometimes it's three, sometimes it's four. Let's say if you're in the Labor Party, your major thinking is not like what's in the paper today, it's like, what are the topics that are dominating the political topics that are dominating the national conversation? So that the national conversation will always have sport and, you know, like world events and stuff you can't control. But the political section of that national conversation, the major job is not to win each individual story, it's to ensure that that conversation is in columns that you win. So if you imagine if the conversation's about climate change, it doesn't really matter what the individual story says or what this journal says. If the conversation's about climate change, in the end, Labor is probably going to come out on top of that conversation more times than the Libs. If the conversation's about migration or asylum seekers, then the Liberal Party will probably win that conversation more times than others. So most of the big structural thinking in doing is not basically, you're not trying to you're not, you're not obsessed by winning every single story. You're trying to nudge the national conversation in the direction of topics in your column. And literally in politics, like, you know, health, education, climate change, labor would win those debates nine times out of 10. Maybe it's not, not. maybe it's six times out of 10, but that's enough. It's kind of like blackjack. That's enough to say, I've got an angle there. Yeah. I'm probably going to win that conversation. The economy is a, you know, ebbs and flows. Often the libs are in front of that one. But things like migration, national security, terrorism, that's in their column, right? And so what you're doing with announcements and and designs, you're not obsessed by like, you know, how's Phil Corey going to treat this or Laurie Oakes or Mark Riley? It's like, is this going to nudge the national conversation into my column? That's prime ministerial kind of thinking and that's what you know of all the people who were masters of that howard was the absolute master at that and this that's not a criticism of howard because mm. it's a you need to be able to do that to govern to achieve big government decisions you need to be able to ensure that the conversation is in your column so you have the support to make these big decisions and he was an absolute master at it and the, the systems that we set up the media monitoring the kind of the radio ring arounds in the morning the which minister's standing up which minister's not standing up are all about trying to nudge the conversation into a column that we think we fundamentally winning. And so I'll give you an example in the morning, right? You wake up in the morning, someone will come into the Prime Minister's office at 4am and will go through all of the papers, listen to all the early radio reads, has seen the, the news the night before and they're basically they will give you a summary of stuff that's running all over the country, all the political
0: stuff, and anything else that's big. Just in one folder, bang. There you go. Exactly that's right. Today.
1: Yeah, they call it round the world. When I was there, I'm sure the Morrison team has an, an almost identical brief. Is it the one person the whole time?
0: Because 4am seems like a ridiculous time. <laughs> they to rotate get up. them. Yeah, yeah those guys, turn, those guys
1: and girls turn over really fast. Oh, I bet. No, look, it's a great job because geez, I tell you what, you go to dinner parties and like literally any story you've read it. <laughs> like, yeah, uh, but you fall asleep <laughs> by nine a. nine p.m. That's the problem. Yeah. But but, and what you're doing there when you get those summaries is you're looking for the stuff that's in your column. And so let's say there's a story in the Oz that's on, you know, uh, like there's been a, a national security story in the Oz and a climate change story in the SMH. The Labor Party will put their best people out and use the colourful grabs and organise a, a media event that day on the climate change story. And the Liberal Party will probably do the opposite. They'll be doing a radio ring around organizing a press event, creating tv pitches, sexy pitches on the national security story and you're competing to try and push your story up to be the dominant story of the day. So it's re- it's very reactionary in that sense. Well, that's the reactionary element, but you know, for months you're planning announcements and that sort of stuff to try and influence what those stories are and you're you're doing your big Labour's big policies will always be in areas where they think they're winning the debate. Yep. And then the Liberal Party's big policies will always be in the areas they're winning the debate. So it's not all reactive, but it's the same fundamental thinking, right? Is put your effort to pushing the debate into your column. And I always say to people, people think a press sex job at the prime ministerial level is to help their boss have answers, basically, to all the questions they're going to get asked. And that is certainly a small part of the job. But most of your thinking actually is to nudge the debate to try and determine the question. So... If a prime minister walks into a radio interview like this, mm. my job is not really he, – he's the prime minister. He'll be able to answer every question that gets thrown at him. You don't get to the top if you do that. Yeah. What you're really working hard to do is to influence the questions that you're going to ask him, right? And that is not reactive at all. That is very proactive and it takes a long period of time. And I don't mean you as an individual journo. You're assessing the media cycle and thinking this is what people want to know about, mm. Our job is to try and influence that so that you're thinking, I've got Kevin Rudd here, I've got Scott Morrison here, I've got Malcolm Turnbull here. Everyone wants to know about climate change or everyone wants to know about terrorism or everyone wants to know about the economy or unemployment or house prices or all sorts of things. And that is actually the major effort is to... And you can talk about influencing the national debate, you can talk about influencing the questions, but really your main job as a Prime Minister's press sec is to... Define the questions that the country is asking about politics, like
0: a watered down version of 1984 with George Orwell and <laughs> well, the thought police. And- <laughs> it's
1: it's not really thought police. I don't mean it in like no, I'm no. trying
0: to in, but, but the journalists are rational.
1: They will react to what's in the cycle, sure. what's of interest. Yeah. That fundamental question defining what's the national conversation is how you win or lose elections.
0: You say so rational there, but obviously. We're humans, so sometimes we have an irrational um, reaction yeah. to a story we don't like, or yep. a person that's written something that you feel is out of kilter with what the meaning should be. Yeah. So, how do you get on with those relationships when a journalist goes beyond what you think was reasonable? Yeah, it's very difficult, and you don't always handle
1: it well. And you know, I didn't always handle it perfectly, and neither did my boss, neither did anyone's boss, or any press sec. Right? Like it is. It's extremely difficult. It's a lot harder for politicians than it is for for media advisors, but a big part of your job is particularly with new politicians, is to teach them to put distance between themselves and the stuff that's written about them. And it actually it's really easy to talk about that, but when it's you in yeah. the firing line, it's really hard to do. <laughs> I remember the first time I got absolutely smashed by the Oz. We won the Oz was like the King of the castle under Howard, right? They got every lot drop. They were basically running the show in the gallery, we, for obvious reasons, didn't particularly like that arrangement. It's not that we were, you know... When you it, say drop, as in, like, here's a story. Leak, yeah. Check Basically, you can yeah. pick up... Beginning of every sitting week, you could pick up the Oz, there'd be a story on the front page, that would be Howard signalling, this is what we're going to be talking about for the next two weeks. <laughs> Great position to be in if you're the Oz very particularly convenient for Howard because their ideologies were broadly aligned. Um, not in a conspiracy way, like, you know, the Oz is very kind of, you know, proudly yeah, it's a conservative just the way it paper. It's yeah. fine. We weren't like that. The Oz didn't like we were we were probably more aligned with other media outlets, not particularly interested in maintaining that relationship. Oz wasn't a big fan of that. They absolutely smashed me up left, right, and center one about a month in. And it was actually really good because I remember lying there thinking, here I am, I've been to press sec for three or four years and I've never really felt the heat like this, the true heat and understanding how hard it is to say there's a paper there that's saying all this stuff about me but I'm still me mm. Like, and I don't have to accept that as fact and I can go on and be a rational and professional actor by building distance between – the paper, the content, and my own view of myself. But that is where I got to, but it was a long process, <laughs> let me tell you. On the first morning, I could barely get out of bed. Yeah. And until you felt that true accountability, you don't understand how much it rattles your your self-confidence. And politicians, particularly senior politicians, have to have to get to the point where they are not impacted at all by not just a story, by a barrage of stories. I mean, uh, think about, you know, Malcolm Turnbull, Kevin Rudd, Julia Gillard, anyone now, Scott Morrison, like the stuff on a daily basis that's written about these people, it is so critical and it's getting worse and worse and worse. And as you remove journalists and put in more kind of ranting maddies, those people, it's even harder to disassociate yourself because they're not journalists writing a story going, you know, a source said, they're just people up there you know, like two-pot screamers just yelling at you, saying you're an absolute dickhead, Mm. it's really hard. There is no solution to that, and it drives some of the partisanship and
0: some of the the more critical and negative decision-making that politicians make. With journalists, and so they do write something that you don't agree with, or they broadcast something that you don't agree with, so when that happens... You, there's obviously a phone call or yeah. there's a calming down of the of the Prime Minister of the day um, <laughs> saying, don't worry about it, I'll handle it, or the Prime Minister wants to go in. How's that relationship next time you see him? Do you put him in the sin bin for like a, a week and, and just ignore them or how is it the next day when you rock up and they're front and centre and they're looking your guy in the eye yeah. and they're looking you back? And Well, first of all, there's a lot of people, both journalists, politicians, press sex who generally,
1: and everyone has exceptions where they lose their mind and go berserk at each other, but generally maintain a sense of, it's not a sense of humor, but it almost is. Like this is still just a job. Let's not completely lose our minds here. And over the years you learn who those people are and you form long-term relationships with them. And every now and then they completely smash you. And you're just like, you're an absolute bastard. And then the next week you're like best mates again and having a beer and yada yada. And that's a normal part of politics. Like but It's not a normal part of life. No, but politics is not life, you know what I mean, in many ways. It's a bizarre, surreal world where self-interest, because the whole concept of democracy is built around pure self-interest. Mm. Voters are meant to vote in their own self-interest. That permeates the entire industry as it in some ways is purpose-built to do. Is like we are all here to pursue our own self-interest, and we understand that means in occasions, not only the journalists going to absolutely smash you and write the most awful things about you, and next week you're going to be best mates with them and sitting around and, and buying them a beer or buying them a coffee and yada yada, but politicians are doing that to themselves the whole time as well, right? So the idea that you're nice to the journo who wrote terrible things about you is not that weird when your best mate is undermining you and trying to take your job <laughs> and has been for 10 years, you know what I mean? And he's the best man at your wedding or whatever, like it's... <laughs> That is just totally normal in politics. (laughs) It doesn't sound normal,
0: but I get your point. (laughs) How's the internet changed the news cycle
1: in politics? Massively. I think I was very lucky in some ways to have seen the Howard machine operating at, at full speed in a period so howard was i think at his peak in about 2004 which was really pre pre internet basic not pre internet but pre the kind of really 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 kind of mass influence of social digital media. content yeah, and social media yeah. on on political information flows when twitter so, came in about 07 08 didn't it yeah i mean uh, maybe a bit earlier i i can remember in the like when you know the 04 election twitter facebook Instagram, none of that stuff played a major influence. YouTube on the kind of on the election. I mean, they were probably nascent around then. Two thousand and seven was the first time you started to see them. Rudd made quite significant headway on Twitter in the early days, in two thousand and seven, and then by two thousand and ten, you know, I mean, Facebook was a major, major influence on the whole thing. But what happened was, I described it as like this: in two thousand and four, and before that period, basically, journalists they were in charge of retailing politics to consumers. And the job of politicians was to be a wholesale seller to journalists. So we only had wholesale relationships. You know what I mean? Like we were like craft foods selling to Woolworths and then Woolworths dealt with the punters. Whereas what happened with the internet was it created this whole new reality where politicians could retail directly to voters. You know what I mean? And unfortunately, In the old system, journos were like a a filter on politicians and they incentivized them to moderate themselves and be fact-based. Because if you knew, in order for me to speak to a voter, I have to go through a journalist and that journalist has a whole series of kind of professional rules and requirements around the way they operate. I normified my behavior to try and influence the voter through the journalist playing by their rules. Mm. Once you took the journo out out of the equation the actually the opposite phenomena happened, where politicians were incentivized to simplify, to make things emotional and scarier. And that's why these guys, the parties that have really taken off in this new world, all tend to be really fringy parties, right? Mm. Because in this world where you're, you're retailing directly to a voter, the incentives are the opposite to when you're talking to it through a journal. It's just like, say things simple, make them emotional, make them scary. That's why, you know, this Mark Latham, Mark II like you know the world he's gone from this erudite scholarly kind of very, very smart guy to just this absolute soundbite machine, kind of, you know, Doomageddon, kind of, you know, lowest common denominator, bit of a niff-nuff if you ask me, in some ways. You know what I mean? Like, look, I respect him. He's a very, very intelligent man. He's, he's doing it on purpose, then. He's changed his strategy mm. to kind of to take advantage of a whole new informational flow, which is direct to consumer. He has no interest in going through journals he has interest in going through other opinion based content, you know what I mean? But he has no interest in passing his content through the filter of journalism. And that's a rational reaction to an opportunity in the political cycle. And it's classic, you know, Latham's intelligence has led him to that point. I'm not a big fan of the content. I'm an extreme critic of the content, but you can't fault recognizing an opportunity. And that Latham journey is sort of indicative of the journey the whole political cycle is going through. And that's fundamentally a result of less journalists having a lot less influence on the flow of information.
0: Now, that's a bad thing, but it's also a reality which we just have to accept. You said cycle. I can't work out how it's a cycle when the internet's going not going to go anywhere. So, it's not going to cycle back around. Isn't yeah. it just going to be like this? Yeah. someone and perhaps go I think a- we
1: use that word when I first left politics, I wrote an op-ed that said, you know, there's not just a media cycle now. There's an opinion cycle, mm. but I, that was maybe in 2011, 12. I agree now. What there is is just there's informational factoid snowstorm. You know what I mean? There is no there is no cycle anymore. Mm. You know what I mean? There's a snowstorm inside a inside you know those snow bubbles. You know that you kind of you shake oh, them yeah, when you yeah. go and yeah. buy. It. That's what it's more like. It's contained in a reality. But it's a snowstorm within that reality, like in terms of flows of information. And the smart politicians now have adjusted to that and they create these little factoids of highly consumable political information and they distribute that themselves. You know, the reality is the old cycle still exists. The media cycle is still there and it's still the biggest single player. But there's this whole new snowstorm of factoid of information and the players in that, there's no one big player. There's just a million individual little Twitter feeds and social media posts and yada yada yada. And if you think of the Howard era, was the the last kind of prime minister who governed in the fact-based news cycle era. Rudd, I think, was in the sort of saddle, and all the prime ministers that came after Rudd are in this opinion-based factoidy snowstorm political cycle. And we don't know how to operate in that cycle nearly as well. And that's why you're seeing this kind of you know much much more unstable political environment is because we don't know how to, whether it's, when I say we, I mean all political professionals are not nearly as skilled
0: as operating in that cycle because it's so much more confusing. Four Prime Ministers not chosen by us in eight years, yep. which has become a bit of a go-to line that I've used on this series yep. so far. Is it a coincidence that we've had that in this new no, new age? But but one thing I'd say is, is voters
1: are having a role... A big role in that reality. And the reason they're doing that is because if the one reason we were voting was so that we got to choose the prime minister, then we would only vote for the major parties because that's how you kind of guarantee you get yourself a prime minister, right? But actually, since 2007, the number of people who vote for the minor parties is going significantly up. And I'm not a critic of that but that is a major source of political instability because what you have is these governments that are on an absolute knife edge now. 23.6% of people in the last election, federal election, their first preference vote was for a non-major party. So that's one in four voters. If you look at Australian history, we've only passed over the 25% threshold three times in 100 years. And every time that's happened, one of the major parties has collapsed basically, in the past. So the Labor Party's been through that whole time, but it had one of those moments was when the Labor Party split. Two of them were, were the equivalent of the Liberal Party in the past, effectively collapsed and was reformed. You know what I mean? Whether it was mm. a kind of the United Australia Party and a predecessor to that. And so actually voters are driving a lot of the instability by basically taking away votes from the major parties and leaving them as these very iffy kind of propositions in government, and that's when they churn prime ministers. And that's quite a normal thing in Australian politics, actually, except for the last 25 years. Now, is the media cycle and the flow of information influencing the way voters vote and the way politicians govern at the same time? Yes, but are voters just like victims of this process? Not at all they have agency as well. And the same thing that's driving confusion and uncertainty in the political cycle is changing the way voters vote. We are in a very unusual period now in terms of just voting patterns. And actually, when you strip away all the emotion, noise, and you just look at the maths, we are kind of returning to the norm in Australian politics. The last 25 years, really from Whitlam, through to the beginning of Rudd was an extremely unusual period. And so if you've come of age politically, post-Whitlam, like and most voters, you know, like who are kind of 70 or below, that's really the only sort of political system they've ever really known. Because it was so stable. That's an unusual period. That's the blip. The stability, when you look at Australian history, that 25 years is the exception. It's not the rule. Okay. And so we sort of think we're going through this incredibly unusual process, and we are, because... Since Whitlam till now is a long period of time, but if you look before that, this prime ministerial churn very normal. The kind of voting patterns look more normal, where you have a huge amount of people voting for the non the non major parties. Yeah, yeah. So I'm not letting politicians off the hook here. What I'm suggesting is, journo's themselves are being influenced by you know a reduction in their business model, less influence, less audience, less resources politicians are reacting to a kind of whole new informational flow where they can see they've got to communicate directly with voters and voters don't want complexity and they don't want moderation. They want simplicity and emotion. And then voters themselves are saying, well, I'm getting all this new information now. I'm going to vote differently. I'm not going to vote in some kind of, you know, it's only nutri or Wheat bix There's a whole (laughs) aisle of cereal now and I'm going to start picking my little niche little- Cocoa Pops. Cocoa Pops, exactly right. All three of us- are getting influenced by stuff we don't understand, but all three of us are influencing each other and no one is kind of the innocent victim in this process.
0: Um, Just back to uh, media politicians and and dealing with politicians and pushing them into the media space. Yep. Do they get media training and get taught how to not only talk but more importantly answer, like I was saying in the intro there with one plus one equals washing machine? Yeah,
1: yeah, it's interesting.
0: The different things. uh, It depends when
1: you start in politics. A lot of politicians who kind of come up through the ranks probably never get formal media training. You know, that's people who kind of start in their, their early 30s or and maybe they start on the local council and then they get a state seat or a federal seat at a very young age. Those politicians, by the time they're kind of getting to the point where their media actually matters, are pretty hard-boiled and don't get a whole lot of training, the people who get training and people who kind of come in, you know, maybe they start in their late thirties, they're gravitating straight to the front bench. They've only been in politics a couple of years. Those people will tend to get formal training, but there's presentational media training. Then there's kind of how to basically answer a question is kind of a very different thing. I don't think there's a whole lot of people that do that outside of political offices, if you know what I mean. Like Mm. that's a very different skill. And that's because Really good politicians never say one plus one is washing machine, right? They're not there fundamentally. I know the journalists would like them to be. They're not fundamentally there to answer your question. Mm. They're there to communicate to your audience, right? Now, you can't communicate well in a conversation if you're ignoring the question, but you also are not there. You're not just a subject of the inquisition of the person you're talking to. You're there to talk to their audience, right? And the art form is to both answer your question and communicate to your audience and you're presupposing that you decide and have a perfect knowledge of what your audience wants to know Mm. and the politician's doing the same thing, right? (laughs) So neither of you actually is being any more kind of, you know, like ridiculous in their assumptions you know what I mean? Because in the end, he's not there to kind of... Because he wants you to vote for him. You're just one person. Yeah. He wants the 500,000 people who are listening and you're both guessing what they want to hear and trying to tell them that. So they're thinking... You, they want to hear about washing machines. You're thinking they want to know what one plus one is. <laughs> both of you are guessing, but, right? So it's not completely illegitimate that they're trying to communicate to your audience in a way that they think, but it's unbelievably painful to listen when you're saying one plus one, what is it equal, and they're saying washing machine. The really good politicians do both at once. You know what I mean? Like they address the question, but deliver the answer. So that's point one. The second point is particularly for prime ministers and premiers, often one piece of content they're doing is going to get sliced up and delivered in a thousand different audiences. So if you're the PM and you come in to a radio station and there's a TV camera there, not only are you then trying to communicate directly with your audience beyond the questions you want to ask, you're also making an assumption about what the TV journo is going to be running that night and trying to deliver a message to the audience who are watching the TV story tonight, basically, whilst talking to you and answering your question, you're getting filmed by Seven and you're really thinking about Seven's audience and what's the Seven journo going to run and how is what you're saying to you going to appear in that Seven story, which may be about a totally different thing. You know what I mean? And so you're actually doing more than one interview and speaking to more than one audience at one time. And the really good people can measure all of that up and come across as natural and answer your question and still get the grab out to seven and do all the sort of things and the print story that's going to run on page 35 of the fin about something. And so they're doing more things than just talking to you and answering your questions. When you get that wrong, you look like an idiot. (laughs) And a lot of people aren't quite up to the challenge, don't have the experience, haven't slept, are angry, are emotional because someone said they don't like the clothes that their wife wears to an event or something in the paper and they're just losing their mind. And, you know, so things go wrong, but it, it is a more complex challenge than just, you've asked me a question and I've got to answer it directly.
0: So, with interview techniques, and you're in the ear of the, the said politician, yep. is there any, like, golden rules to do or not to do when they sit down for <laughs> well, an the interview? Well, very, the very obvious one, which
1: so many people, you hear it, is like, don't repeat the negative, you know, like... Mr. Harris, did you shag that donkey? No, I never shagged a donkey. You know what I mean? Never say that. <laughs> like, never repeat the negative. And you say it to yourself, you are thingo, because if you're getting filmed and you're recorded, that's the grab. That is the grab that you'll always remember. So there's simple ones like that. Don't repeat the negative. Basically, don't change your answer midway through. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because you suddenly have a new point, and you actually see that a lot is like you, you know, a lot of interviewing is like you go down a pathway and you realise, oh, I've made a mistake here, like, or oh, I've got a better answer. You don't concede, oh, well, that might not have been correct. I'm going to go on to this point, you know what I mean? Because the moment you concede that you've made an error in the interview, then the whole interview is just going to come about what, what mistake and yada, 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 So you learn how to evolve and rework your answer, but never quite change it midpoint through, you know what I mean? And you'll see politicians often will kind of say stuff, basically, and they'll start almost working on the answer in their mind. And often really what they'll do is the first interview, they'll say it, they'll have a form of words that won't quite work, and then they'll evolve it and evolve it and evolve it. And eventually they just get really, really good at that. But the reality is you win interviews not by knowing tricks to answering questions. It's by having a framework about what you believe in and the way the country should be run. And when you have that framework, you don't get that moment. You know, some politicians, when they hear a question, you can almost see the the database moving and they're going, oh, I was told to say, and that little moment of hesitation where they're going to get the pre-baked answer yeah. is insincerity. And it comes across in TV so strongly. Whereas politicians that have a framework are like, you've asked me a question about tax my fundamental believings on tax are X, Y, and Z. Even if I don't know the exact thing you're answering, you're asking the exact marginal tax on derivatives in Queensland in 1975. I know what my framework is. I can just say to you, look, my rule about tax is always X, Y, and Z. And that having a framework is how you deliver good answers. It's not the structure of the answers and knowing the tricks and things. There's some crisis-based stuff, but the real trick to answering questions is, it's not a trick. It's the opposite. It's a reality. Have a framework so that wherever the question comes from, no matter how unexpected it is, you've got a basic set of rules about your own views and how you want to run the country. And you can answer without that little moment's hesitation that no one knows, no one quite sees it, no one can actually understand it, but everyone knows
0: you're bullshitting. (laughs) (laughs) Right. I I can't have an interview like this with a guy that was in the ear of the prime minister daily without you giving me a good Old war story, but or, or, or give us an indication of what Kevin Rudd, the Prime Minister, was like dealing with the media and how much babysitting you had to do, how much cajoling you had to do, how little you had to do because he was so good. Where did it sit? Uh, all of the above, you know what I mean? And that's the same
1: with him. Look, I worked for a lot more than just Kevin Rudd. I worked pretty much for all of them. I was there for 10 years. Mm. And look, Rub was a very tough boss. He was very demanding, but he demanded more of himself than he demanded of us. Now that doesn't mean the demands weren't unreasonable occasionally, but fundamentally in my world, the equation I always did in my head was, yeah, like that's a lot to ask of someone and that's a huge amount of demands to put on people, but you're putting them on yourself. So I'm in, I'm still in. But look, there's very tense moments and you would have stand up fights, like not just mild disagreements, like full-blown screaming arguments and then you wouldn't talk to each other for a week, like literally oh, cool. like a couple. like And quite awkward when you're flying around on a small plane and going all around the world and you're in the same planes together and same office and same car and, yada, and you're not talking to each other for like three or four days. Awesome. But that happens. Like that sort of stuff happens and that's very normal.
0: It does actually sound very normal. Yeah. Relationship-wise. <laughs> I won't exactly go into details, but yeah, it, like everyone goes through it.
1: Well, mate, I, I spent... Four and a half years, I saw Kevin Rudd every single day for four and a half years. Whew. And uh, maybe there was days where I'd be in Canberra and he'd be in, but yeah, you know, you'd be on the phone and you're yeah. texting and emailing and yada, yada. yada. But every day, you're going to have those moments. Look, I always say to people, like, thing about politics is the exciting moments aren't nearly as exciting as you would think. You know, there is big moments, the GFC hits and the yada, 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 but it's kind of like the west wings of the world and that sort of stuff. They exaggerate the really good parts and they exaggerate the really negative parts as well. Most people in politics, almost everyone on both sides of politics fundamentally, they're not trying to lose the election but they're basically trying to do what's right for the country. Yeah. They have very different views of what is right, but that's fundamentally what they're there for and so most of the time you're not like some crazy Machiavellian conversation where you're like, yeah, if we do this, then that group of voters will hate that group of voters. You actually are trying to work out the right solution. The problem is by the time it gets to the PM's office, about 5,000 different people at different levels have tried to work it out and haven't been able to. And so they're kicking it up the line yeah. and you're trying to do the right thing, but you get things really wrong. You know what I mean? That's what most happens. And most of the time I read now that I'm, I'm completely out of politics now, you read an interpretation of instead of events and it's all about some assumption about nefarious motivations. Whereas I guarantee you 99% of the time, what goes wrong is people just make the wrong decision. They think they're doing the right thing, whether it's on the economy or on the health insurance or on petrol taxes or mining taxes or- Leadership spill. Whatever. They're just trying to do the right thing and they go down a wrong rabbit hole and the decisions are subject to so much- accountability and have such clear consequences that are publicly available that what you see is the normal stuff ups that happen in every workplace, just exaggerated. And then you get this incredible amount of accountability applied to them. And And accountability, if you've never experienced it, is an incredibly difficult and uncomfortable process to have applied to you. And it makes you look a lot stupider and more Oh, what's the word, like more dodgy than than you are, if you know what I mean. And so mm. actually, I don't know, I to get me into an argument about politics now would be so hard <laughs> because the idea that there's some really good politician and some really bad politician, like be they a Lib or a Green, or it's like, give me a break, mate. Like you really think those guys in there on 180 grand a year are cooking up like House of Cards style conspiracies to murder someone? And no, give me a break. Like, And do you really think our guys are the best in the world and they're evil. It's like, no, I know a lot of people in the Liberal Party, I know a lot of people who work for the Greens or Greens politicians or Nationals politicians, and they're pretty good people. Mm. They're having a crack. They're trying to solve a problem. They make some unbelievably ridiculous errors over time, but very rarely are they making those decisions for the wrong reasons. Last one.
0: How do you control, from a media point of view, a raging inferno... Like a leadership spill, like in 2010 Mm. with Kevin and Julia, Julia Gillard and Kevin Rudd. Yeah. You can't? Well, I
1: always say to people, getting into the media cycle is pretty easy. Once you know the tricks and you've got a good set of contacts, getting out of the media cycle is very, very, very difficult. And if the media cycle wants you in, it's very hard to break up. And look, the reality is, is movement is almost always your enemy in those situations. So learning how to not do anything not react to the cycle and basically stop presenting new information and creating new content is really, 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 really hard. And and what you'll see with really good politicians is they're incredibly judicious about when they engage and don't engage. It's not that they're really great when they answer. Being good on camera is not the most difficult skill. What's really difficult is having the judgment and the self-discipline to only engage at periods where you're in a time of strength Mm. and to disengage when you're not and to have the faith that even though you might be getting absolutely smashed, you can just step out, you know what I mean, and let it run. But even Prime Minister's press sex do not control the media cycle, you know what I mean? And neither do journos and neither does anyone really. It's a beast, you know what I mean, that kind of has its own life and you just got to learn that sometimes as negative as things are, as hard as it is not to engage and fight back,
0: the best possible thing you can do is to do nothing at all. Lachlan Harris, the chat has been fascinating. You've almost convinced me that one plus one equals two. (laughs) Thank you for your time on Peacock Politics. (laughs) Pleasure to be here. Peacock Politics was presented by me, Adam Peacock, and created in collaboration with Podcast One Australia. Producer, Liv Proud. Sound production by Darcy Thompson. Theme music composed by Matthew Dwyer. Executive producer, Jennifer Goggin. To hear more episodes, go to podcastone.com.au or search Peacock Politics on Apple Podcasts.